Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, and I've got several introductory remarks here to get us into the text. So we're not going to read it right now, but we're going to read it very soon. I, I ran across a man yesterday going in to um, register for our room, and, and he was dressed to the nines. He was just dressed up, probably in his, I'm going to guess, somewhere between 65 and 75. I needed my wife there to really tell. Other, I just know he was an older gentleman. He was somewhere in my group, the group I'm getting into. And um, he immediately said, oh, how you doing, young man? And I'm like, well, you know, I got some gray hairs too. I mean, young man, yes. And he said, oh, and some, very quickly we got into the fact that he had um, just celebrated that day his 50th wedding anniversary. And so it's like, wow, wonderful, congratulations. And then I mentioned to him, oh, yeah, we're celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary this year. And I was like, hey, yeah, we kind of a humble brag there. And, um, he's like, oh, yeah, you're just kids. <laughs> it's true. Um, and then we, we, he was talking about how fast his kids had grown. Oh, my kids, just, you just blink your eyes, and they're, they're grown and past grown. And I said, oh, I know, we have a granddaughter. And he, his face changed, his disposition changed, his, his shoulders slumped. And he said, oh, yeah, I don't have any grandchildren. And it, it, I realized in that moment things changed really, really fast. And then he began to tell the details of why he didn't have any grandchildren. And he was really a man at this point as he talked about the age of his children and the circumstance of his children, that he was a man who would not have grandchildren that he had lost hope in having grandchildren. What are you hoping for today? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's something small like your favorite sports team to win the championship this year. Maybe it's for a vacation to live up to expectations if you haven't already gone on one. Maybe you've come back and you're hoping that you never have a vacation like you just experienced. Or maybe it's, it's for change in some person or even yourself. Or, or maybe it's for deep things like reconciliation in broken, long-term broken relationships. Or maybe you're just too scared to even let yourself hope for something because you would be crushed if it didn't happen. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And one old school commentator says, if hope is delayed any length of time, the mind becomes uneasy, the heart sinks and fails, and the man is dispirited and ready to despond and give up all hope of enjoying the desired blessing. If ever there were a people as a group, a community destitute of hope, it would be the Israelites during the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Beat up by the powerful countries around them. Finally, the Babylonians kind of putting a, a death nail into them for their ending their misery. The, the big dog on the block, Babylonians had come in, they had conquered them, and then relocated them to Babylon, removing them from their home. And all of this, we're told, because of the sin of Israel. Isaiah 1 through 39 is sometimes called the book of judgment. It's a heavy read, gang. It's a, it's a heavy read. If you're discouraged today, that might not be the place to start for you this afternoon in your devotional reading. 
But it recounts all the details of the sins of the people. And the end result of reading Isaiah 1-39 through is, is that the whole people could say, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But that's not the end of the story. Isaiah 40 through 66 is sometimes called the book of comfort. The shocking turn in Isaiah 40 is overwhelmingly wonderful. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Hope again. The Lord will do something for you, destitute people. The Lord is going to accomplish for you what you could not accomplish. And nowhere is that hope more specific than Isaiah 53, which I would love to just spend the afternoon. We could just preach Isaiah 53. They could bring in lunch, and then we could go to Isaiah 54. Okay, got one, yeah. The rest of you are like, no. Okay, we won't do that. But, but think about it. Some of you are very familiar with Isaiah 53 and the promise of the suffering servant, the Messiah, Emmanuel, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one prophesied and, and pointed to throughout the book of judgment is now on display as the Lamb of God. Chapter 53, Isaiah, is the prophetic description of the most important death in human history, a death which is also the most loving act ever committed. I just have to read three verses to you. He was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned away, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Biblical hope is rooted in this suffering servant, the Lamb of God. Therefore, Paul Tripp can say biblical hope is fundamentally more than a faint wish for our sports team to win, more than the deep hopes of our desires and longings, whether it's to have a child or to have a grandchild or to have reconciliation with our children, whatever it may be this morning, fill in the blank, dear saint, dear Christian, dear brother, dear sister. 53 says, God has completely committed to fulfilling the hopes of your eternal salvation and joy in the suffering servant the Lamb of God. Now that's all preliminary. We could go home right there rejoicing. But we're going to look at chapter 54 this morning, which is a rehearsing of the happy consequences resulting from all that was accomplished by the suffering servant, all that was accomplished by the Messiah, all that was accomplished by Jesus. So we read the whole 54th chapter. Are you ready? This is the best part of the whole sermon right here, saints. It's God's holy, infallible, inerrant word that we get to hear. So, Lord, write this truth upon our hearts. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. 
Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but, the stead, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror. For it, shall not over, shall, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help now. We, we need your help every moment. And here we are before you again, Lord, needing your help. So, Lord, I, I pray that we would have ears to hear what you are saying. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would open up your word, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would be transformed by that observation, by, by the glory of what we see. Let us now, Holy Spirit, work among us that we might commune with you through your word for your glory and our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now this is surprising. 
this chapter 54. As I mentioned before, we all, we've already had a surprising turn, but, but the surprises continue. They just continue to come. More and more surprises. God's love expressed in his unmerited favor towards those who deserve his full wrath is surprising. <laughs> it's surprising. Beloved, God is bringing glory to himself in his complete commitment to his people. Or to, let me say it this way. God's complete commitment through the suffering servant means his people have his hope. I'll repeat that. God's complete commitment through the suffering servant means his people have hope, means they have hope that is supernatural, hope that is rooted in the promises of God, hope that is rooted in the very nature and character of God, hope, I mean, that is rooted in him and what he has done. And we're going to just look at this through three Simple points that I hope help us digest this truth, understand this truth, and I pray by God's grace, comfort our hearts, and in some cases, build biblical hope. Not wishful thinking, but assured confidence in what God has promised to do in the lives of his people because of the wonderful work of his Savior that he has provided for us. So point number one, God's complete commitment to his people means we have hope in him for fruitfulness. God's complete commitment to his people means we have hope in him for fruitfulness, verses one through three. The first image Isaiah uses is, is that of a barren woman. And I recognize this morning there could be some here who have walked through the, the real heartache of infertility. Um, couples that have hurt by that. So I, I pray the Lord would minister to you, and as we walk through this, the Lord's kindness would just rest upon you. That is a sorrowful thing. But in Isaiah's culture, infertility marked a woman with shame. And as God now looks at his people, he, he sees them as this barren woman. In other words, the emphasis of, of God through his prophet is to say, I see your shame. Israel had not brought about God's salvation to the world. Their call was to be an example to the world of faithfulness and actually obey the Lord and, and walk out this journey of covenant relationship, this commitment, this agreement that they have. God made this agreement with them. Now we know God's commitment to his people was not rooted first and foremost in his people. It's rooted in himself, which is why Abraham, if you read your Old Testament, took a little nap. <laughs> why God covenanted for his people. Take a nap, Abe. You're going to lay over there, and we will, we will make this covenant, this triune commitment, God's holy commitment to his people. But the fact is that Israel itself had failed to keep the covenant commitment, the covenant commandments, the commandments of the Lord. But the Lord then, post Isaiah 53, he invites us to sing, even in our barrenness. The Lord turns to, to the barren and he, he says, now you're going to sing because, we're not, we're not just singing in spite of, we're singing because the children of the desolate will be more than the children of her who is married. There's a priority here that is brought to bear that says, I want to see the fullness of my salvation, that where you grieve and you feel the shame of your sin, Israel, I'm going to demonstrate fruitfulness through you for my glory and your eternal good. 
I'm going to work in your lives. God's commitment to saving a people is not rooted in his people. So therefore, he wants to relocate their happiness from themselves to the servant of the Lord. How can a barren people sing? Because a suffering servant will die for their sins. God does not blink at their sins. God is not overlooking their sins here. He has atoned for their sins in Isaiah 53. Your iniquities are upon the lamb. Your sins are covered. All those who trust in the servant, the suffering servant, the perfect servant, you will experience this great, wonderful fruitfulness from me. I know we, we may not think that the reformers shouted in church and stuff, but I think they did. Calvin says, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy, and happy people sing. <laughs> I like the logic of that. As the gospel people gather and the realities of what he's done, anyone showing up here this morning, even as, as we walk through worship, there was a reference to good day, bad days, good week, bad weeks. Some of us this week may have failed miserably. Sins of omission, sins of commission, things we've repented of. But as we come in here, we don't come relating based on our performance this week. We come relating based on the performance of the Lamb. Rejoicing based on the performance of Christ. This is what Yahweh is saying. I'm going to relate to you based on the Lamb. I'm going to bless you based on what He has done. This is not prosperity, health, and wealth. You can't deliver anything for yourself. But I can deliver blessing for you. Let it be assured. Let that begin to stir hope in your hearts. Meditating on my promises. Look to Christ and labor out of what he has provided. Being assured of your acceptance due to the work of the Lamb. Oh, and then sing. Sing, saints. You sang beautifully. This was wonderful to worship with you. To just sing with all our hearts as we sometimes say. And then we sing our guts out. It's a little crude, but we were singing with gusto. With, as people who've been redeemed. The song of the redeemed. Now, there's a couple of ways pointed out by um, Ray Ortland. A couple of ways you can respond to this kind of idea of fruitfulness. And one way is, is to draw on the energy of our, of our own good intentions, right? You ever had a, a sermon that, that was so grace-saturated but had wonderful application that you thought, I need, I need to do that. And the, the Holy Spirit convicted you, and you went out to obey. That is wonderful. But you probably also had times where you heard something and go, boy, my life would be a lot better if I just apply that. And you just made a direct application without ever going to your heart or anything. You just think, I think things would be better if I do that. And, and you, based on your good intentions, begin to apply these things apart from engaging your heart. Thank God for genuine conviction from the Holy Spirit, the gift of repentance and the ongoing encouragement and sanctification that God works out of us. But saints, we can't just go out and do better. <laughs> we must go out relying upon the grace of God, enjoying him, and experience the transforming work of sanctification in our lives. You, you will do better because God will bring fruitfulness even in your sanctification. You will experience growth and godliness because God will bring 
the realities of that godliness out in your life. But it's not mere good intentions. We can treat it like a, maybe we think of it a little bit like New Year's resolution, but we have Sunday's resolutions. Oh, I know it's going to be Sunday. I better repent Saturday night. Get ready to worship on Sunday morning. Yes, and repent on Monday morning too if you need to. And Tuesday morning, because he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We're not just preparing for Sundays. We're preparing for an eternity with him. That's the end game. So each day, not good intentions, not Sunday resolutions, but oh, wonderful spirit-empowered change wrought by the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we're looking more like Jesus all the more. That's relying on God's power acting in our weakness, which God gets wonderful glory from as we are weak. He's saying you are barren, but it doesn't matter anymore. You can live expectant. God's plan for his people is more and more blessing, grace upon grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 39 chapters of ugliness. And he doesn't even mention their sin to start. He mentions their condition. You wicked sinner, you deserve to be here. Oh, I see you, barren. I see the shame and sorrow. I see the shame in your, and he meets them. He doesn't just stop there and moves on. Make room, he says. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Like, really, Lord, we're barren. Why are we building a bigger tent? I don't need a bigger house. It's just more empty rooms. There's a little bit of this that you've experienced recently in sending Bart out. There's a sense in which that is expanding your tent. Oh, Lord, we're sending out. The Lord is doing a great work among you. He's growing his church, even in Conroe, through your loving, faithful participation in gospel ministry and and in our partnership as Sovereign Grace. Don't look at yourself and think, oh, we probably don't need to do. Just, Lord, you know what you want to do. We want to be faithful stewards. We want to obey. We want to follow you. Make room. We should throw our heads back and laugh with delight over spiritual family, our spiritual family multiplying by a power not our own. What did we do? (laughs) We were in the pit. The Lord delivered us. And then we just live for him. We turn and obey. We fight against sin. Yes, but the Lord brought it all about. The Lord did it all. The gospel changes the subject of our lives. It changes the subject of our living. It changes the subject of our churches so that we know we're built around the truth of this suffering servant and we're living out of what he has provided. We can look honestly at our weary ideals that never amount to much at this point and then look away to God's cheerful power working for his greater glory and our richer joy, and even the salvation of the nations. And we like it that way. If you're here and you've been born again, you actually like that. You love him for the way in which he works through our weakness and our need. And you watch as his glory grows. We're a part of something beautifully improbable from beyond ourselves. I pray you would remember that tomorrow morning. We we can see that so clearly sometimes on Sunday morning or when we're gathered with God's people, or maybe for you it's when you're in your devotional time and the Lord opens your eyes, and then, but we know, we know our weakness, don't we? Oh Lord, remind me of the beautiful thing you're doing in my life. We're gonna get to the end and help us orient that beautiful thing, even in the midst of our hardships. But just be reminded, saints, that God is working in your lives. Barren lives. 
will be filled with abundance, expanding families in the midst of exile. Why? Because God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, his complete commitment means we have hope for fruitfulness. The other two are shorter. God's complete commitment to his people means we have hope in him for restoration. Verses 4 through 10. More verses, but shorter point. Sing again. <laughs> There's just a lot of singing in this chapter. Um, all throughout, there's just an emphasis upon singing. He starts with singing, and that controls the whole text. Now he, he's telling the abandoned wife to sing. A wife reconciled to her husband is Isaiah's second image used. And so the striking thing is what the text doesn't say. Because if you were to turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah 121, here's what the Lord through his prophet says about Israel. The faithful city had sunk to the level of a whore, an, ad an adulterer, an adulteress. Looking at the sin of the people, there is nothing to sing about. But God in his grace turns and doesn't address his people as an infidel or as an adulteress. Addresses his people as an abandoned wife. But who abandoned who? Israel had abandoned God. Do you see the grace here? Even in his turn towards them, he doesn't say, you're where you should be. You made your own bed. Just live in it. It's the consequences of your own living. No, he turns his attention to his people. And even in their rebellion, he says, look, I know that you are the abandoned wife. And now I'm going to restore you to fellowship. I'm going to restore you to this covenant union. I'm going to do this work. And how did he do it? All through the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, through the work of the one who would atone for the sins of his people. God looks at his people in their guiltiness and sees the lamb covering their sin. He moves quickly into sympathy for them. Do you think like that, Christian, this morning? In your sin, how do you think God looks at you? Christian, this morning, when you sin, do you, do you think it's just like, yep, I know you do that. It's just who you are. Maybe you have, a, have had family members or parents who have told you failure, 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 and that's your orientation to God. If I can j do just right, then, then he will accept me. That's not the message of Scripture. It's certainly not the message of Isaiah 54. It's you can't do enough to make yourself good enough to be accepted by me who is altogether holy. But I can do enough to make you enough in Christ to be accepted by me, the Holy One. That's what the Lord has done. The enemy would whisper in your ear, the Lord, stay away, run away. You did this sin. Oh, how many? You're just going to keep doing it, aren't you? You're going to do it tomorrow. You're going to engage in that sin tomorrow. That is a lie of the enemy. There is a victory, Christian, for you and me. There is a victory for you and me in our day-to-day -day living. There's a victory for you and me in our year-to-year -year lives as long as God gives us breath. And there's an ultimate victory where our sin will ultimately die and be no more. And we will be raised to new life with him. Fully restored to what he's made us to be. God even hints at it here, doesn't he? Just the sweetness of this. Like a wife left and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, God is saying, yes, I was angry. 
And I had every right to be. He, he reminds them that he's holy. I had every right to be. But my servant has taken your guilt away. I was angry, but for a moment. I have steadfast love for you forever. Angry, but for a moment. Steadfast love forever. Listen, saints, the gospel is not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Oh, it's he loves me. He loves me. He is covenantally committed. And the evidence of that is the work on the cross of his son on my behalf, the Messiah who would come and shed his blood for me. I wonder, I wonder if in, at times, the abuse of the word love in our culture and the the happy, clappy nonsense that goes around as gospel truth that has no sin, that has no blood, that has no gospel, has watered down the reformed emphasis upon the love of God. And so that it wells up in our hearts and our conversation with people that we're, we're consumed with the fact that God has forgiven our sins. Saint, when's the last time you just weeped over that reality? That God Almighty delivered up a substitute for me. That my sins would not be accounted to me as death but I would receive his righteousness and I would be accounted as one righteous in light of that wonderful provision. Who am I to receive such blessing? Who am I to be a cast off spouse and be accepted into this rich love? Every way in which I've been made satisfied in him, delighting in him. Every loss answered in him. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. He's not a weak husband. The Lord of hosts, he flexes his muscle a little bit. I want you to see my strength. The Lord of hosts. Well, can I trust another husband? This husband abandoned me. Can I trust another friend? This friend abandoned me. Oh, I'm the Lord of hosts. (laughs) We didn't cause his grace to begin with. We can't reverse it now. God's anger is real, but passing his love is also real and lasting forever. For all the spiritual adulterers who will receive it, me, you, everyone else, all the spiritual adulterers who will receive it, this is God's work. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. God's complete commitment to his people means we have hope for fruitfulness. God's complete commitment to his people means we have hope for restoration. Verse 10, as we complete that section, it's kind of the summary of the whole passage, I think. It's, this is verse 10 of Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. One of the um, strange dynamic, some of you may have experienced this, of, of being in a, a providential catastrophe. Since nature doesn't have the power to work on its own, we'll just say as God works providential ca- catastrophe and Harvey is, is the weird sensation of you just don't know what's going to happen about anything. So as Houston flooded in 2017 and, and homes began to fill up with water and every, literally every one in our congregation, the people I talked to, all of my neighbors, we didn't you, you just get this sense like, okay, I expect the ark to be coming by at any moment here. Like, 
did I miss the ark, Lord? I didn't, I don't, I, no, I didn't miss the ark. You just had this sense that what is happening here? And, and then your daughter calls and she's on the roof of her house because her house is full of water. And you're like, that's not good. I can't get there. And boats come and re- it's just such a, and you think, Lord, where, where are you? And every member in your congregation is experiencing that together at the same time. Um, and, and as we walk, we remember that God's complete commitment to his people means finally our glorification. I hope this is said with as much sensitivity and pastoral care, but we're all going to die some way. Should the Lord tarry, every one of us will lay down our lives. I'm sure you've experienced recently in this congregation, if not a member in this congregation, someone closely connected to this congregation whose ordained days have come to an end. And there was just a time in that flood I thought, I'm like, it's just water, but I'm thinking, okay, Lord, here we go. If this is it for our congregation, let us all go. And some of the people were like, don't pray that, Daryl, don't pray that. But you, you do, don't you? I, th- I think you have to, this is really where we live on the edge of eternity. We are going to face our maker. We are going to lay these bodies down. We are going to die. But point three, God's complete commitment to his people means the hope of glorification. The hope of glorification. Not only fruitfulness, not only restoration, but the hope of glorification. Isaiah's third image he uses is a commitment to his people and that there will be this city gleaming with brilliant jewels. Have you ever done a project in, in your home and you started it and you realize, whoa, this is way beyond me? Maybe I should ask the reverse. Has anyone ever not started a project? No. If you're at my home, then you turn it over to your wife and she finishes it. Um, she's just really skilled. I'm, come on, people. She's, she's just really gifted. Um, but you've seen this happen. You've probably seen it with all the construction going on around here. Where, where consider the cost of building a tower. Whatever you're building, the Lord never starts something that he won't finish. He never starts something. He never has a lack of resources. He never has a lack of skill. He never has a lack of knowledge. He never has a lack of power. He never has any lack. He will finish what he has started And he assures the precious Old Testament believers here and us all through Christ the Lamb that we will, in fact, experience the completion. So he addresses us in verse 11 as he addresses the Israelites. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and and lay your foundations with sapphires. We have a hope in the commitment of our Lord evidenced in this glorious new city. You can read more about that city, the fullness of that city in Revelation 21. I don't believe here Isaiah, God, is not speaking through Isaiah about Israel as a nation's future. He's speaking to his people about their assured eternal future. He's talking about a city whose builder and maker is him that is not built from the ground up but comes down from heaven to us. Listen, this morning, if you're doubting God's ability, God's resources, God's skills, maybe God's just winked at you, just overlooked you, 
If ever in the midst of difficult circumstances you've questioned God's commitment to finish the work he's begun in his people, then listen to the final seven verses of Isaiah 54. If you're in Christ, you're wrapped up in these promises. In Christ, you're wrapped up. The chief cornerstone is Christ. The foundation is the apostles. You're wrapped up in this city. Our condition in the world is afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted. Does that resonate with anyone this morning? Sounds a little bit like Paul's words, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Sometimes as Christians, we just have to say, Oh man, things are terrible. But I'm here. And we don't, we don't say that cynically. Sometimes things are terrible. There are many wonderful things to enjoy and participate in the world that God has made. And every one of them, we should give thanks to him. We don't deserve any of that. You should all enjoy baseball. <laughs> I'm teasing. You, but yeah, you should enjoy baseball. You should enjoy the things God has given you. You should in, especially enjoy the richer things, the precious children, fathers, the so you train your children. Enjoy the things he's given, the fun things that he has given. Talk to one another about how the Lord has blessed you with this thing or that thing and how you're enjoying it and how you believe it even brings glory to God to enjoy it. And then if it's sinful, I pray brothers and sisters, remind the brother and sister, hey, that one we may need to talk about. Let's look at God's word. But there's so much of an emphasis on what we don't participate in, there can be a little emphasis upon what we give God glory for, what we give thanks for. But even with the temporal things that bless us and the wonderful union that we have in Christ, there's still a great deal of pain and brokenness and rebellion in the world, isn't there? There's still a great deal of hurt. We see suffering all around us and we mourn. We suffer and we cry out for deliverance. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we've been talking around that all morning long. We sang about it so richly in these songs this morning. Let me, let me address you rather if you're not in Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, if you, if you haven't bowed the knee, if you haven't been born again, meaning we mean by that is that literally given a new spiritual heart, which means that you have spiritual eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain for you, the one mentioned in Isaiah 53. I would appeal to you, run to the cross. It's there where your sins would be nailed. It's there where there is hope for forgiveness for you. It is there where the barren find fruitfulness. It is there where the rejected wife finds restoration. It is there where the promise of glorification rests the one who has raised from the dead. Confess your sins. Turn to Christ. Because I can tell you, the Christians this morning, the most grieving reality for us, the most grief-induced reality, the most deep sorrow for me is my own sin. It's my own sin. You're here and you're in Christ. I guarantee it's your own sin. No, no one's sin do you know better than your own. And the enemy will whisper in your ear, can he really raise this up? 
Will you ever overcome? A little bit with where we started. And I would say, saints, meditate on the promises of God in a new city. Remind the enemy. And if you need to do it like Luther did it, where you just talk to him and tell him he's an idiot. Do it. Oh, devil, you are a great, strong being for sure. But you are nothing compared to the creator who loves me and redeemed me and atoned for my sins. Talk to yourself. Oh, flesh that would haunt me. You have an expiration date. You are going to die fully and completely. You are shrinking now by virtue of the work of the Spirit within me. And you will finally lose. Not because of me. Not because of my church. But because of the Lord who brought me into this church to show his glory as we work together to see the fullness of what God would want to do. The glorification of his people even now. We'll be like Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Saints, dear Christians, do you meditate on your glorification? Do you meditate on the new heaven and the new earth? Read, read, reread those last seven verses. Richard Sibb says, the life of a Christian is wondrous, wondrously ruled in this world by the consideration and meditation of the life of another world. Meditating on heaven is not just an option for us as Christians, for our hope. It is a necessity for our hope in God, the end for which he made it all. Do you, dear Christian, look forward to, are you hoping for glorification and glorification, you see the new city, but glorification is God's glory realized through the work of the Messiah, the suffering servant, Jesus the Christ, and his image bearers. Do you realize that restorative work is going to be complete? That you yourself are the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That you yourself are the glory of God in Christ Jesus. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. Let me, let me lift it out of it. This morning he's lifting our head. Let me remove it from the navel gazing that we've been done. Let me tell you that the mountains will be removed and the world destroyed before you lose what I promised to finish in you. Says the Lord who has compassion. You wouldn't expect him to go compassion right there, but there's compassion even after all my yelling. And, and then he goes, compassion. Everything the suffering Savior has done will result in the hope-building reality of God's eternal love for us. So, saints, God is completely committed to you. And there are responses to that. Jesus picks it up, doesn't he? He picks it up in some of the words. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, how can we love him? You've received his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation, to be a satisfactory sacrifice, satisfying my wrath. I love you. Satisfying my wrath for you. I think at Christmas we need to put propitiation up on those big letters in our yards. And people go, what in the world is that, you weirdo? Well, that little baby that came in the manger, that little baby in the manger, 
is the one who will ultimately save us from our sins. Who has, in fact, lived a perfect life, satisfying the complete demands of the law. Took upon himself our sins. Went to the cross and died a substitutionary death that we might live. Oh, propitiation. Propitiation. Thank you, Lord, that you've delivered not only the demand, but the solution, the answer to the demand. And so that we can say, with Paul, back to hope, saints. Back to hope. Let your hope grow in that. Let your hope grow in God's complete commitment. Let your hope overflow, as Romans 5 says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, trust in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Sing, people. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God who is love has given himself to his people. Oh, and it's an irrevocable gift for those who've placed their faith in Christ. You have the love of God for you. Oh, you have the love of God in you. The hope of glory. He will finish the work that he has started. His complete commitment. Let's bow our heads and pray. Just before we pray, I want to read a few words of this old hymn. Yeah, team, go ahead and come on down. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, and his blood support me in the sinking flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come, with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Lord, we stand. We stand only because of what you have done, what you've delivered in Christ this morning. Oh, and it's such a happy place to stand. Lord, at times it is joyful through tears. It's the mixed reality of living in a fallen world with Sin outside and sin within, and oh, how we long. Oh, how we long. Maranatha, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. But till then, you've committed to finish your work that you've started. Lord, it's not wishful thinking. It's an assured confidence that your promises will succeed, that you will finish. Yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes 
and amen. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.